Shabbat shalom. We have the pleasure to welcome back the elite soldiers of the Israel National Defense College. They're the ones in the uniform, by the way. It's a high honor and a great joy to see you again. Our guests are the very best of Israel, trained to command and willing and able to shoulder the yoke of defending the Jewish state. They are among a select group of us who, swift as eagles and strong as lions, place themselves on the front lines for the battle of liberty, dignity, and security. Honor guests, we say to you what Moses said to Joshua, Chazak ve'ematz, ve'adonai hu ha'holech lefanecha, be strong and of good courage. Fear not and do not falter, and may the eternal God always be with you. We have a little thing when the INDC comes. I give a talk about Israel, and they give a Dvar Torah downstairs at uh, dinner. <laughs> so that's what we're going to do again. We have the best of the best of Israel and the best of the best of America tonight in one place. So it's appropriate to remind ourselves. It's appropriate to remind ourselves why the Jewish state, why we fight. We fight for the right to live free. Jewish lives matter. They matter to us, and they matter to the world. We have bestowed incomparable gifts upon humanity. And the Jewish people matters. We have been counted for dead a thousand times. We should have disappeared long ago from the pages of history. And still we live. And still we fight. As the prophet Ezekiel preached, Venatati ruchi vachem vechitem. I will place my breath in you, and you shall live again. And I will set you upon your own soil once again. That the Jewish people has the right to self-determination in its ancient homeland was never broadly accepted in the Middle East and is increasingly challenged in the West. During the New York primaries, I wrote a brief letter to the New York Times challenging Senator Sanders' characterization of Israel's military actions in the Gaza War of 2014 that they were disproportional. As it turned out, the senator had no clue how many people were actually killed in Gaza. He just threw out a figure, 10,000 or so, because he knew it would be well received by his base of supporters. His estimate was five times what Hamas itself said. 200-word letter produced dozens of responses from all over the world. Many were supportive, but I was much more interested in those that were critical. What particularly struck me was the vehemence in objecting to the formulation of proportionality that I proposed. Try this, I suggested. Don't attack Israel, 
and Israel won't attack you. Could there anything be more proportional than that? The responses I received blew my mind. Critics simply refused to accept the proposition that Israel has a right to respond at all to missiles on schools, hospitals, and tunnels swarming with murderers. The reason they insisted was that everything is Israel's fault. The Palestinians are the way they are because Israel drove them to it. It is the soft bigotry of low expectations. What can we expect from the Palestinians? They're controlled by the Jews, deprived of free will. Teenagers stabbed grandmothers on the street, but they were driven to it by the Jews. They have no moral capacity to govern and control their actions. They rejected a two-state solution in 1947, but they were driven to rejectionism by the Jews. The Palestinian Authority rejected three Israeli peace offerings in the past 15 years, but it's Israel's fault. Palestinians are the victims, as if playing the victim is somehow morally superior. And it dawned on me how many people recoil, not from what looks to them a disproportional response of the IDF. That's a head fake. Proportionality is just another way to challenge Israel's very legitimacy and the right to self-defense. For them, every response is disproportional. This is the slippery slope towards the whitewashing of war crimes and the justification of murder, terror, and purposeful civilian death, even on their own side. They want Israel to attack Palestinian civilians. It's why they fire from hospitals, ambulances, and schools, and United Nations facilities. This, too, is a war crime, whitewashed by Israel bashers. And much of this animosity comes from liberals in the name of liberalism which is news to me, because I'm a liberal. And always believed that Israel is a liberal cause. And was always taught that the self-defense of free societies in the face of anti-democratic and anti-liberal forces is a liberal virtue. Who are these people calling themselves liberals, distorting liberalism into a hideous disfiguration? What business do liberals have supporting those who oppress women, gays, minorities, and Christians? What business do liberals have in turning a blind eye to the suppression of free speech? What are liberals doing giving aid and comfort to anti-democratic religious fundamentalist extremists? Would those very young people on campus 
They're learned professors. The folks who tell us day and night how bad Israel is at every rally retreat and resolution, would they be willing to live even one month in Gaza? Or southern Lebanon? Or Syria? Or even Ramallah as a gay Christian? Or as an advocate of free speech? Or a free press? Would the Presbyterian church that recently voted to divest from Israel hold its convention in Gaza City and resolve that its delegates stay for a year to minister to Palestinian Christians? The very idea is preposterous. What business does the British Labor Party have in defending anti-socialist, religious, fundamentalist, misogynistic, anti-Semites as Hamas and Hezbollah? Why does the leader of the Labor Party consider Hamas his friends? Just because they're anti-Israel? And that's enough to outweigh everything else that European socialism affirms? And by what measure of decency do they thus abandon liberal Muslims who are trying to change their societies more in the image of European socialism? The world is turned upside down and inside out. You pretend that Israel is the worst human rights abuser in the world and are willing to excuse the inexcusable. This is the fashionable bunk of our times. Mass, myopic, moral malignancy. The rage of the self-righteous. They are so self-assured because they have never experienced anything but Western democracy. Terror is only a word for them. The fecklessness of people who never have to contend with the real-life realities of the Middle East. The question is not whether you can make a case against Israel in the Oxford Debating Society or on the Berkeley Student Union. The question is, are you willing to submit to Hamas? Of course you wouldn't. It's just an expression of hyper-hypocrisy that undermines the very concept of objective truth all in the name of opposing Israel. Actual truth and real-life context don't matter. Now to be clear, each of us is responsible for our own actions irrespective of what others are doing. If we are wrong, we are wrong, even if others are doing worse. And so I do not discourage criticism of Israel, either by fellow Jews or others. I don't pretend that Israel is perfect. I know that Israeli society has many unresolved problems. I don't feel obliged to defend every Israeli policy with which I disagree. Who agrees with everything 
Every government does. I believe in peace. I believe in a two-state solution. I believe in dignity for the Palestinian people. I believe in compromise. I believe in live and let live. I am not a fan of the settlement project that sullies Israel's good names and compromises its moral fiber. We are the most critical and self-critical people in the world. We don't fear criticism. We're taught in our tradition, kol machloket shehi l'shem shamayim kayem. Any controversy that is for the sake of truth is destined to endure. I do not believe that all critics of Israel have a Jewish problem. I do not believe that Jewish critics of Israel are necessarily self-hating. Actually, the reverse. That's what Jews do. We criticize. Furthermore, criticism is the very lifeblood of democracy. Free societies rely on citizens who see something wrong and continue to criticize until it's right. But the critics can be wrong, too. The shrillness of their complaints is not the measure of their virtue. Where is the context? Life is about context. We do not live in a moral vacuum. There are barbaric human rights catastrophes 10 miles in every direction of the Israeli border. How to explain the one-track vehemence of perceived Israeli transgressions and no apparent angst anywhere about Russia raining down indiscriminate death and destruction within earshot of Israel or its invasion and control of a third of Ukraine. Show me the American and European campuses that have a free Ukraine movement. Or Saudi Arabia raining death and destruction from the skies and killing tens of thousands of Yemenis. Or China that continues to suppress Tibet. And by the way, the Chinese settlement policy is many times worse than the West Bank. Where is the free Tibet movement? What about the Kurds, the Yazidis, the Armenians, or even the Christians in the Middle East? Where are the marches for them? The Christians are being slaughtered in the villages they have called home since the dawn of Christianity. Where are the churches who feel so morally committed to boycotting Israel and say nothing about fellow Christians? There is simply no comparison between Israel and the despotic brutalities of the Middle East. The region is one big human catastrophe. 
There are over 10 million refugees. No one cares. Europe only awoke to the problem not because of any moral imperative, but only after waves of refugees crashed onto the shores of the continent. And their solution is to pay off Turkey so that they may seal their own borders. Again, this does not excuse for a moment flaws and wrongs in Israeli policy. But don't pretend that Israel is the worst human rights problem. In comparison, Israel is an oasis surrounded by medieval barbarism. Don't hold Israel to different standards than every other nation on earth. And while I affirm and take seriously critics of Israel, it is also undeniable that for some, rejection of Israeli policies mutates into rejection of Israel itself. Anti-Zionism is not necessarily anti-Semitism, but the dividing line is becoming increasingly blurred. The despicable Israel boycott forces that are gaining strength, in particular on campus, prey on the insecurities of our youngsters and exploit the weaknesses of their Jewish identity. It's our failure. It's why I encourage you to bring your teenagers here and younger children today. And it's why I arrange for them to interact with Israeli soldiers on our missions so that they can meet proud, humane, strong, self-possessed, courageous Israelis born in freedom and dedicated to the proposition that Jews, too, are endowed with certain unalienable rights and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This week's Parsha, Amor, describes the menorah of the Mishkan and later the temple in Jerusalem. Initially, the main function of the menorah was utilitarian, to provide light. It stood inside the holy area, before the curtain of the inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, where the tablets of the law were stored. The lights allowed the priests to see what they were doing. Ultimately, the menorah became the very symbol of Jewish sovereignty. The symbol of the modern state of Israel is the temple menorah. The light that burned continuously ultimately became the eternal flame, Ner Tamid, the light that never went out. The menorah was a magnificent creation. It was made of Zahav Tahor, pure gold. Scholars tell us that pure gold is the highest grade, having undergone extra steps in the refining process to free it from any impurity. Pure gold symbolizes the Jewish dream of refinement and purity, a refinement of the body of the Jews so that together we may aspire towards the purity of God's words. The Jewish people does not live simply to survive. We exist not for the purposes of elitism, self-aggrandizement, conquest, or dominance. Our aim is to improve society. To repair the world. To be a blessing 
to humanity. As God tells Abraham, Veshamru derech Adonai la'asot tzedakah mishpat. I have selected Abraham so that he may direct his posterity to keep the way of God by doing what is just and right. When the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in the year 70, they carried the menorah back to Rome. It was their way of pronouncing the end of Jewish sovereignty. The Jews would soon disappear from the pages of history. Like all the other nations that the Romans subjugated and defeated, the Romans were convinced of that. Titus was the Roman general who finally conquered Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. To honor Titus, a special arch was built in his honor. It was called the Arch of Titus. You can still walk through it. If you cross the street from the Colosseum and proceed several hundred meters into the Forum. On the bottom corner of the Arch of Titus is a frieze depicting Roman soldiers carrying the menorah from the temple. The next time you're in Rome, bear in mind that the history of our people figures prominently in Roman lore. The last known resting place of the temple menorah is Rome. In the year 71, the Emperor Vespasian arranged a victory march in Rome to honor his son Titus and parade in front of the Roman people the spoils of war. There is a surviving eyewitness account of this parade. Josephus, the former Jewish commander who became the chronicler of the Jewish war, witnessed the parade firsthand and described its grandeur in great detail. Towards the end of his account, Josephus writes, most of the spoils that were carried were heaped upon a pile indiscriminately, but more prominent than all the rest were those captured in the temple in Jerusalem. A golden table weighing several hundred weight and a lampstand similarly made of gold. That was it. The end of the line for the Jewish people. It was good while it lasted. But nothing lasts forever. The kingdom survived for a thousand years from King Saul to Shimon bar Giora, one of the three main commanders of Jerusalem who, according to Josephus, was shackled and dragged in front of the Roman crowds and executed to the delirious delight of the masses. The menorah, the very symbol of Jewish independence and self-determination, was in bondage at its holding site in what the Romans perversely called the Temple of Peace. The Temple of Peace was funded through the plunder brought back from the war on the Jews. One wall of that temple still stands in the Roman Forum. But the temple, along with ancient Rome itself, is dust and rubble. The Jewish people lives on. The menorah has been rekindled.
It burns eternally. It is the Romans who are no more. Our light has never gone out. It cannot be extinguished. It burns today as bright as ever. If only Vespasian, if only Titus could see the eternal people, the people that they were convinced they destroyed but could not destroy back in the land of Zion and Jerusalem, striving to be a light to the nations, to do what is just and right in the sight of God. This is why we fight. May the menorah burn with eternal light, and may the flame of our people never go out. Amen.